This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by the Charcoal Book Club. Their carefully curated selections reflects the best in contemporary photography and all for a reasonable price. And they are delivered directly to your doorstep each month. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. It's a great way to begin or expand your photo library. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the promo code DECANDIDFRAME at checkout. Happy New Year and welcome back to a new season of The Candid Frame. I hope that you enjoyed a wonderful holiday season and I hope that 2024 proves to be an excellent year for you and we hope that we can play a small role in making that happen. I've been thinking a lot about when a photographer is ready to say something with his or her work. At some point, a photographer becomes skilled enough to make a good photograph consistently. It's no longer about luck or happy accidents. There is a purposefulness behind the picture making. And it's at that moment that the photographer asks the question, what do I want to say with my photographs? What can I express and share about how I see the world that makes all the time and effort about more than just spending more money on gear and chasing likes? It's not an easy question. A photographer, Rachel Steele, seems to have found her answer. When you look at her work and various projects, you see more than beautiful black and white imagery. You see an artist with a voice and a purpose as the diversity of her personal projects attest. I hope that her work and this conversation helps you get a little closer to what you are meant to say in your photographs in 2024. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, thank you again for making time for me, really, and looking forward to talking with you. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be a guest. You know, I never get tired of looking at work and seeing what, what people are up to. And I really like looking at your, your, your photographs. So I have a lot of questions about, uh, about your story and about your work. But one of the things I was thinking about, I'm always thinking about what my first question is going to be, right? Because I, I don't work from a list of questions, but I'm always thinking about the first question. And I thought I'd ask you a question that I sometimes ask my students. Are you, a, are you the kind of person that likes to make photographs or are you the kind of person that needs to make photographs? Oh boy, I am obsessed. I think about it. It's just in me. And when I'm not creating or I'm not thinking about creating, I feel like I'm not fulfilling my purpose. I feel, I feel dissatisfied. So for me, it's definitely a need. It's something that I just am extremely passionate about. Do you understand where that, what that needs about? I feel like it has different levels to it. I have a need to show people how beautiful they are in, from my perception I have a need to fulfill my own creative itch. The need for human connection is really intense in me. Mm. Um, And I have a big need for adventure too. And just showing things in a way that makes somebody feel something about not only what they're seeing, but about themselves too. Mm. I think a lot about that because 
I get I get many people who who ask about you know how to make a life out of this. Not necessarily make a living out of it, but make a life out of it. Mm-hmm. And the reality it is it's a very good, very difficult choice to make. Yeah. And and one of the easier di- uh, differentiators is whether you just like to do it or whether you need to do it. And if you're in the latter, that's a that's a big help because mm-hmm. that need to do it will help you not only to go out and make the the photographs, but do all that other stuff, the grunge stuff, you know, yeah. the, the 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 stuff that isn't as romantic or nice to do, like accounting. Um, that becomes sort of necessary in order to be able to, to, to do it. Tell me about that part, because I can see from your work that you, you love doing this and you're incredibly creative, but sometimes that just isn't enough. It's not enough. What you have to do is you have to know how to work the work. And I always hmm. shy away from allowing myself to feel like a used car salesman because you have, <laughs> to be, you have to be in the business of revealing it to people. It's not enough to walk away from a shoot with tears running down your face. That explosion of euphoria when you have had that extreme magic in the lens. I hmm. wish that was enough, but you have to work the work. And that's a whole nother set of you know, tools in your tool bag. And that's a whole nother discipline that you have to have because like a lot of creatives, we're not necessarily the business people, you know, we're not necessarily the bean counters, but it is important because how is someone going to see your work or experience your work if you don't show it to them? And it might, it might mean, and I try to share this to people, you might get 20, 30, 40 no's, but that one yes you know, so mm-hmm. in the face of maybe a lot of no thank yous, oh, it was beautiful, but not this time, still digging deep and understanding, okay, one more, one more, one more. You have to work the work. And you kind of, that's where you have to divorce yourself from the deep, intense emotions. Yeah. And get a little bit, put a little bit of that like business hat on. Um, and, and that's it. That's not the easiest bridge to gap as a sensitive creative. Yeah. And you you just said it, you know, it's, it's a numbers game. You know, you, you may get a hundred no's, but it's just about the two or three yeses that make, that make the difference. But because we're so emotionally invested in our work, we can take that sort of personally. So tell me about your journey in terms of being able to sort of disconnect that, the, the the kind of pain of a rejection and still push forward and go to the next person or go to the next client until you find the people that say yes. I mean, I think we all understand how devastating rejection is, especially as a creative, when you're showing someone, in my case, it's a photograph. When I'm showing someone a photograph I've created, what I'm doing is I'm actually saying, Hey, here's my soul. Do you want to budget? Do you like it? Is it good enough? That That's really what you're doing. But I had to come to a conclusion, I think, as I was maturing with my photography and as my understanding of the field, you know, of the, the big world of professional photography, I, I came to the conclusion that I'm actually not a mind reader. 
And I don't know the point of view of what, you know, maybe a curator is looking for or an editor is looking for. And another thing, they already kind of have an idea of what they want. They're just casting a net to see if they can Mm -hmm. find it. And I don't know that. I don't know what they already have in their mind. So when I accepted that, they already know what they want before they're asking for it. And they're just seeing what's going to fit their exact vision. And that's okay if I'm not their vision. They've already decided. It's kind of like when a company does a job posting, but they already know that they want their cousin to get hired or their buddy to get hired. That's nothing to take serious, you know, to take personally, even though that is so hard to do with something as personal as artwork. Um, and then I just realized, hey, that's it's nothing personal at all whatsoever. Yeah. And as long as the rejection's done politely, which... 95% of the time it is. That's just an encouragement to keep going and push further anyways. So, yeah. And then if someone is an ass, you know, that's their problem. Exactly. <laughs> they got a bigger problem than about whether or not they like your photographs. Like, dude, do some healing. <laughs> um, you know what you said about, about the, pictures being about your soul. I mean, you're really sort of tapping into that idea that, you know, the, the more personal the work is, the more unique, but also universal it becomes. And I think that that's, that's lost a lot in any art form, but especially photography, where people think that if they follow certain rules or use certain equipment and they get something that resembles what they've already seen somebody else does that somehow that's that's creativity and it's not but part of the journey is being able to trust your own vision and your own approach even if you're not seeing that in around you yeah right your work is different from what you're seeing other students or other photographers do and you have to have a certain degree of confidence that this is that this is the path that you're going to pursue. So let's talk about that a, a little because it's really interesting taking a look at your work. There's there's landscapes in there, but there's also a lot of environmental portraiture that's going there. And I can imagine people going to which one are you? Yeah, <laughs> choose yeah. a lane. Mm-hmm. Right? Or can you even shoot color? Do you even understand? Exactly. You know, you get that. And people get a flavor for what they see a lot, you know, consumers of images. And they mm-hmm. get the, the flavor for what they think is hot or is contemporary or trendy. And I love all of that. And I love seeing things and how, how it develops. But for me, I'm such a romantic And I feel so connected in my own style because that's how I can communicate. And I think I've had moments where I thought I'm too old school of a style, you know, the work, maybe it's too heavy, even if it's joyful, maybe it's too, maybe I'm making it too intense or too much, you know, it doesn't Mm -hmm. have this like avant-garde or this, maybe abstract or contemporary or or this and that. And then you question, am I staying on the path that isn't going to lead to like doors of now opening? And then I think, no, because this is the, this is the voice of my own soul and you can't hide who you are. 
in photography at all. You could kind of get a feeling for who somebody is within five seconds because of the, you know, mood, whatever it is. There's like all kinds of descriptors that go into these creative decisions someone have has made to use a visual language that doesn't involve words, right? And I think, God, am I, am I missing the bullet here? Is anyone going to want it? And then I think, no, this is, this is my voice and that's okay. It, it's not going to be for everybody. And the more I hone my own skill and my own techniques, I'm realizing I'm being able to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's where I want to shoot from. That's where I want to create from is these deeper places and deeper places. And as that evolves and I'm becoming more and more wise, I have to accept that that's my work and I'm not going to compare it to other people's work because that's the kiss of death. And I'm not going to compare it to what's hot now or what's really editorial, what editors want, you know, um, I'm just not going to do it. What I'm going to do is compare myself to me a year ago, five years ago, and I'm going to push, and I'm going to be so critical of myself in that way, how you can grow and mature that way. But um, I think really shooting for the ideal or shooting what you think people think is awesome. Yeah. That's, that's the kiss of death. I think as far as authentic work or something that mm-hmm. you're standing tall next to. You served in the Navy for eight years and then you were serving as a photographer and um, you know, you lived to uh, Hurricane Katrina and, and that experience was a traumatic one for you, that one that sort of turned you off for photography for a while and that you eventually returned to it. Um, talk to me a little more about that, but the angle I'd like to take on it is how do you think that time helped shape you to lead you to become the photographer that you are now and make the choices that we've just been talking about? And could you have done that had you not gone through that? Well, to be quite honest, um, a little correction, I was an electronics technician in the Navy, but always a bit of a shutterbug. I was in for nine years and I was stationed on the Gulf Coast when Hurricane Katrina happened. No one was kind of there but us. And I said, oh, my gosh, let me do it. You know, let me capture this. Let me. People said, hey, we need someone to do this. Oh, me, me. Right. And I thought at the time I was doing, oh, man, I'm getting out of this tremendous work. But what that actually led to was weeks and weeks of this really traumatizing imagery that I was creating. But at that time, I didn't think so. I thought, wow, what an honor, right? What an honor to see, capture. I felt like I was honoring the victims, you know, my fellow my fellow service members. And um, right after that, I went on a wartime deployment. And I realized that I didn't want to pick up my camera at all. And this was the first time in my life that I'd ever felt a complete lack of anything for photography. Mm -hmm. You couldn't even, I even got rid of my camera. It was just out of me. It was completely gone. And it was in 2010 and I was out of the Navy. My hands were kind of becoming a little bit more disabled with what my career was in electronics and communications and all this man, man work and stuff. Um, And someone gifted me a camera and said, hey, it's time to start shooting again. And even just the thought of it, Mm. at that point, I was well into understanding that I had PTSD. But I didn't understand the extent of my photographic PTSD. 
I didn't understand the extent of when you're looking through your viewfinder, your wall is down so that it can come into you and into your brain. And I didn't understand because I'd never been trained how to capture something that immense for the brain and capture it photographically, not have it kind of come into me. Mm. And when I went to start shooting again, the anxiety and turmoil, ugh, the angst, I hated it. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. I fought it. I just, oh, the shakes, the sweats, almost tears. Mm. I would do the shoot. I would force myself because I'm a big, I'm a big fan of, getting through it. I'm a military girl. And then after I would complete shooting, it was the highest euphoria I'd ever felt. Tears of joy, complete tingling all over. So it was from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high. It was completely dysregulated emotionally, especially with photography. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to do it. But I'd already... I had that fish hook back in. I started yeah. becoming obsessed with it because what I was shooting was really beautiful and I could feel it and I knew it. And I had people in my life at that time that I was already doing another career. And I had people in my life that would stumble upon my work and say, whoa, please enter this contest. Please let us sell your work, this, that. And I was begged to enter my work into this international contest people guiding me along the whole way. I didn't know anything about exhibiting uh, this stuff. And I took second place in this big international contest. My PTSD was so bad. I could not even attend the opening and they were begging me. Are you going to come? Are you going to come? We want to honor you. I, I literally could not. It was so intense. And I realized I'm not going to be able to climb Mount Everest with a camel on my back and I'm going to have to face it because I'm not going to walk away from something that I love mm-hmm. and something that I knew that I had a natural talent to because of how sensitive I am as a human being and how empathetic I am. I already knew it's who I was. And that's the rest is history. You know, yeah. that was that was it. I had to I had to face it. So what did that look like that involved counseling? No. <laughs> No, okay. So counseling you- in the form of well, I'm a vet. In the VA, they don't really give you counseling. They just do their <laughs> their way of medicating through things. But for me, what it involved was was basically me googling best photography school in the world, and because I already had a full career at this point, almost 15 years into electronics, blah blah blah. I, was, I knew I needed to be formally trained because you can always rely on your training. It becomes your second nature, right? And I needed to also give myself the breathing room that school kind of provides you and kind of a proving ground. And and I knew I would be positioning myself just like in the military. I knew I'd be positioning myself with mentors Mm -hmm. and people that kind of the gatekeepers or the knowledge keepers. And I knew I knew if I just got there that everything would that if I was willing to do the work, which I knew I was because I'm just like a workhorse. Um, that the rest would, but I'll tell you what, it wasn't easy at all. I was still, I, w- I would have to pull over. I was driving about four hours one way, each way, yeah. my commute to school, but I was having these little pass outs 
um, it's the it's the photographic PTSD. And I just kept fighting, fighting, fighting. And I could start to feel my brain calming down, becoming more orderly, finding a way to express things you don't have words for this intensity, mm-hmm. grabbing the intensity and using it as a tool. And then I just started, oh, yeah, this is awesome. Let me see if I can go higher and higher and higher and calmer and higher and let's just do it. Don't let up. Don't let up. Right. And. And you're a mother at the same time. Yeah. I've been a single mom the whole time with them. That's, that's even more amazing, you know, because that journey is a difficult one. Yeah. Even if you're just by yourself, but you're raising two kids at the same time. That's a lot. That's a lot. And that would stop a lot of people. It, it was a big ask for my girls. Uh, but when I decided to go to school, I had also been in well, kind of a long term, just to be honest, an abusive marriage with someone I married in the military. It creates a weird bond when you meet someone in in war, like a trauma bond that your brain always goes back to this bond. Right. So I thought, oh, we're going to cut that. And me and the girls are going to do our thing because you can't go to the moon with the bad wrong gas in the rocket, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, we found it as a place of healing. And me being on the road so much back and forth, our house started getting really, really calm. And we started to bond together as a unit and develop who we were, learning how to communicate, all that good stuff that we all did. We did all we did all of that together. You know, so, and I, I just, I couldn't give up. So, so tell me, <laughs> tell me about your time. You know, you're learning, you know, the skill sets in terms of making photographs and being able to talk, talk about your photography, which is a real big component of all this. Yes, it is. Um, but you know, when, when you look at back at that, that time, what do you think were, some of the more valuable things that you learned that had nothing to do with making the photographs? I think that it gave me a way of interacting closely with people that maybe would cause a reaction in me that I didn't like. That's something you need to learn how to do, Mm -hmm. especially the higher you go into it. Um, Learning how to present my full confidence without Sometimes that can make people feel the wrong way. But if anything about my background, I'm hard as steel, as they say. Um, And I've always shied away from, we'll say, showing my full, the the full Monty. And also realizing that that's okay. It's okay to stride in somewhere confidently and just be yourself. And I know I'm always kind and loving and, and, and that's fine. And, and so I'm always coming from a good place, but understanding that it's okay. And it's also kind of a requirement to present your full confident self uh, with your work and not being afraid to say, this is who I am. And that's actually okay. And sometimes the more intense you are, the better it is in your work because it's your true self. You know, letting loose, letting the pit bull off the chain, I guess you could say, and not being ashamed of not being ashamed of who I am. Mm-hmm. I've always had this big cloak over myself because of my 
upbringing and the military and these traumas that happened during that, you know, I've always had this big cloak where I felt I've had to be so tightly controlled over people's perception of me and always having to be making sure no one's seeing anything wrong, you know, and that actually is just a prison in your own mind. Oh yeah. I had a good friend of mine. He once, he told me, um, other people's opinions of you are none of your business. Yeah. And when I first heard that, I was like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Of course, it's my business. Because I had this mindset that I had to control how people perceive me. And it's like, oh, no, it's none of my business. Whether they like me, whether they love me, whether they're completely indifferent, that's their prerogative. My my job is just to be myself yeah. and do what I'm inclined to to do, always being loving and respectful and considerate, but ultimately, uh, it's not my job to make anybody like me or anything that I do. Um, yeah. And I think that, that that comes from, you know, my own issues and my own legacy of trauma, that that, that was my way of trying to deal with my own pain, right, was trying to exert control. Yeah, I actually wasn't, but it was kind of an illusion. But, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, well, I had the epiphany. Oh, people can sense you're hiding things or whatnot when you're operating under this hiding parts you don't want them to see. Shame things, maybe you know all this trauma, shame, blah blah blah. Yeah. And then I realized. They may not know what it is, but there's something about that that others can sense. Mm -hmm. So you got to kind of drop that away and let the full self out and just be okay with who you are. And that's really tough. I struggle with that every day, but the authentic self is something people respond to. Yeah, but it's interesting when people that come from that choose to do something that means doing the exact reverse. It's like, oh, you know, cracking your ribs open and completely exposing yourself through the work because that's the only way that happens. And it's always, always strikes me as funny that considering how high I behaved in the world normally, that with the camera, I felt that, well, I need to do this. I have to do this. I have to expose myself from this. Because I know I can look at the work and I know when it's working. It's when I'm making that choice. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it's kind of a gift to, to, to have that when you recognize that. And then when other people appreciate it. Um, you talked earlier about, you know, entering the contest and all your friends are sort of encouraging you. Um, but the, the long slog and you and you're really adept at this from you know what I've been following of you like in, in your social networks is that you know, you've got you've got a, a a community of people who love what you do right and and encourage you and 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 love seeing what you're you're producing um getting there as you said before is not about being a used car salesman it's about being something else. What is that? I think vulnerable. I think not being afraid to show your soul. Um, 
not being afraid to just do the work no matter what. For the last couple of years, I've been going on these amazingly beautiful, but really, really, really intense and challenging photo expeditions with mm. like maybe a dollar in my pocket to eat every day type of a thing. And you think before you get there, or this is how I think, what if I can't do it? What if it's not there? What if I don't do it? What if I can't do it? Cause you don't know what you're going to face. And it's like, no, I don't care what I face. I'm going to do it. And I think that's what people get inspired about. Yeah. And I think that's what people connect with because I'm letting the fear be my driving force and not being what shuts me down. Mm-hmm. I've got to, I've got to look in that fear in the face and I've got to grab it up and I've got to say, no, now go time now. And then you do it. It's like almost literally being in the military. You can't react to the fear. You just have to react. And that's the, that's the scary thing not to be funny, but, and that's what people react to because it's the bravery that it takes. I think for my, in particular, what, I do what I've kind of cornered for my own little world. And they think, yeah, they're cheering me on. They're saying you can do it. They love people love. And I love seeing that the, the, the underdog win, you know, I love seeing people go for something and get it. It feels so good. It's almost like I get to share that with people. And in particular, I really do it a lot. A lot of my motivation is doing that for my veteran community because I want them to live so hard. I want them to live. I don't want any more of them to die. I want them to live so hard. And that's my promise as I live so hard. I want, I never want them to give up ever. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I'm never going to give up. That's my promise. And I think that spirit can be infectious and it can spread just like negativity can, Mm -hmm. that can be a cancer. I think courage and, and the, that the drive. And I think that can, Oh man, if she can do it, maybe I can. Yeah. And if she gets up, look at, at 5am when I could have stayed in my butt in bed, I'm up and I'm saying, Hey, fight the fight today. And they say, yeah, (laughs) They're, they're in it with you. They're in it with me. Yeah. One of the things I really like about your environmental portraits is that you're very conscious of the environment. I hear, I see a lot of photographers who say they're environmental portraits. Uh, they do environmental portraiture. And I go, yeah, I see the portraiture. I don't necessarily see the environment. Because <laughs> to my thinking, a really great environmental portraiture it means that the if you made the photograph without the person, it would be still a great photograph. Yeah. Right? And when I look at your work, you you've you've gotten that down because I lo- I love looking at how you use that frame, and you're very graphic. You know, there's such there's such a, an awareness of line and shape, not just in relationship to to the subject, right, but just in terms of 
how you use that 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 composition. I really love that about your your work. Um, was that something that with that awareness of your sensitivity to that come slowly? Was it an epiphany? How did that sort of take shape for you? I, when I, I kind of always had the inclination about the whole frame. I've always kind of been aware of the whole frame because I think sometimes people's focus gets on the face of who they're shooting and the rest of the frame is just what falls away. So I've always had an awareness of it, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't until I was able to kind of use, I have a background in electronics and I'm pretty intense and it wasn't until I could bring those two things together and I started really understanding graphics and just like, for example, how a grocery store aisle has certain things put in certain places for yeah. a brain, the science of the brain. It wasn't until I started really diving into the science of a viewer's brain, as I like to put it, and the placement. I like to shoot vertical, I, even though I can do horizontal mm-hmm. and people ask me that, but I like to master a brain's movement and how I want it to move. And in order to do that, you have to be hyper aware of everything, which is the big challenge because sometimes you have one minute, two minutes, three minutes. Right. Boom. It's a, okay. Bye. No, thank you. I'm, I'm on my way up the rest of the hill with my doko on my back, you know, <laughs> so you only have sometimes one or two minutes to get the exact precise frame And I love that it engages all kinds of areas in my brain. It almost puts you in overload. You're like, you're, Mm -hmm. because not only is the emotional content, that's the number one thing, right? But if the person was out of there, it's like two stories are almost going on. The story of the person's soul that hopefully they're letting me see and the story of everything else. And when you put those two stories together, you, you damn near have a whole book in one image. You know, I'm from those, I'm from the old school where, you grew up hearing, oh, a picture's worth a thousand words. Yes, it is. And then some. Be, be so tight on your frame. I like to just be, I'm intense. I like a tight frame. Yeah. But when you're not mindful of every little micro detail, it's gone. It's lost. It doesn't have that magic something that you can't put the words on. And maybe the viewer doesn't even understand what it is. Because it's down to a scientific level, scientific level, and that's what I geek out on. Yeah, yeah. Because I was watching, <laughs> uh, I was watching somewhere they were talking about some new lens with a very shallow depth of field, and you know when the new lens come out, everyone's like talking about it. And it's all these YouTube videos and about the shallow depth of field and the bokeh and all that other stuff. And I was just thinking, well, that's not, why does that bother me? And I realized what bothered me is that. When the lens, when someone gets that lens, they create pictures that where they're emphasizing the technical quality of the lens, and then going, "Oh, I'll use a shallow depth of field, wide aperture, get all oh, get that bokehlicious look," and but it ends there, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Yeah, anybody with that lens could make that picture, but." Where's you, where's you in it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's the thing. 
it's like, yeah, that's a, that's a tool, but what are you going to do with it that's different? Yes, that lens or that camera gives you that certain quality, but where is the you in, in these photographs? And uh, you, don't, you don't have that problem. I can see when I look at those, when I, especially when I look at those portraits, it's just like, oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, especially, it's amazing because your, your subjects are sometimes a very small percentage of the frame. Right, but they're present. It makes them so much more powerful, almost. Yeah, well, that's you know, true. It really does. It allows. I have a school of thought on using size and scale and negative space. If you understand how you can use that, and I want to use like uh, old school Japanese landscapes to kind of make this yeah. point. They are powerful and there's hardly anything in the frame. And when you can do that, now you're talking. When you can bring someone to it, mm -hmm. when you're giving enough space to suck the viewer to it, oh, man, now you're talking. So, when you're, like <laughs> so, so talk to me about, and, and if you could give me an example of, of a shoot, especially one where you 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 go in cold you haven't had a chance to scout you don't know what the lights like what the settings going to be like give give me an example of a shot and what the process was for you well i'll actually use one of my more well-known recent pictures um i was down in morocco on a 2000 mile expedition with about 300 bucks and me and my assistance pocket. And I saw it at the beginning of our, our road trip, I guess you could say, I saw these extreme hay trucks and he goes, Oh, take a picture, take a picture. And I thought, no, we're going to take the picture when the picture is there to be taken. And I do this a lot. I, I kind mm -hmm. of know what I want, but I'm just not running around clacking. It has to be there. You have to be able to see it in the moment. So I had seen quite a few of them, and um, I was quite ill, actually, during that expedition. And we're going over the Atlas Mountains, which is just one of the most dangerous mountain passes ever. And there's one little place to stop, and I was exhausted. I could hardly drive. We're just getting ready to leave, and all of a sudden, this hay truck pulls up. And my assistant's going, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. The guy immediately says, no, thank you. Right. He's driving this thing. Mm -hmm. The most, one of the most unbalanced loads you've ever seen on earth over one of the most dangerous roads. So anyways, blah, blah, blah. He goes, he buys him a soda. I'm just taking pictures of his truck just to do the exercise of it. And, um, I had had these little, little pictures printed out of what I was doing. And I, sh I showed the guy I said, here, you know, and he said, holy cow. It's a picture I'd taken thousands of miles away. He said, that's Shauki. He said, okay, you can take my picture. He literally gave me one minute, literally, wow. maybe 10, 15 captures. So the way that I approach that is always be ready to do it, no matter how, no matter how quickly it, it is. And he literally gave me one minute. And if I wouldn't have been ready mentally, which is all I always, I always try to stay ready, um, I wouldn't have gotten it. It was one minute I had. Um, and I'm, I'm so happy that the universe gifted me because after we got yeah. done, we got 
I started crying. Every time I cry at the end, because I know I can feel (laughs) There was another one in um, Nepal recently where there's just throngs and throngs. It's almost like uh, mosh pit worshipers at some of these temples. It's so intense. It's one of the most crowded. And I just needed to step off for a breather out of this where I was at a World Heritage site. And I look at this huge prayer wheel and there's tons of people walking around. It was so big. And I thought, wow, if I get a microsecond to just photograph that with no people, like how calm and beautiful. So I'm kind of like dialing in my settings. It's pretty complicated. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, this amazing monk pops up next to me, speaks perfect English. He said, hey, how's it going? I said, dude, it's going awesome. In about two minutes, he had unlocked me. We were completely, I was feeling seen. I felt such a pure love. And I said, would it be okay if I photographed you? Because I didn't know what his thoughts were on that. This is just maybe two minutes after we met. And he said, yeah. All of a sudden I look up, the prayer wheel's empty. And I'm talking, this is one of the most chaotic scenes on earth. And I said, hey, how about right there? He just knew where right to stand. He just stood right where I wanted him to. We had maybe 30 seconds, 45 seconds before all of a sudden it all, but it was like a moment in time, a minute in time. He unlocked me quicker than I've been unlocked before. And I unlocked him quicker. You know, it was like, (laughs) it was amazing. (laughs) But I never let down my eye. My eye is never resting. If I'm going to shoot, this eye is never, this eye never gets on a lunch break. Yeah, thriving under pressure. That's an important skill set. Skill set. (laughs) Because I'm, I mean, I, you know, go halfway around the world with 30 bucks in my pocket, like, (laughs) like like you do. But that being said, um, I like just being thrown in cold. I, I, going in with a preconceived idea uh, has holds no interest f- for me, right? I, I can certainly work that way, you know, when I'm someone's asking me to, but I can't necessarily say that I'm like that. You know, the hairs on are standing on end. You know, <laughs> in my skin, right? Because I've I've had moments like that where. I'm having to make all those calculations within seconds. Yes. And then the satisfaction comes from, one, the recognition of the potential of the moment, and two, the making of the photograph. And sometimes it's not successful, which is disappointing. Yes. But but the feeling when you recognize the potential is sometimes is – more satisfying than what the photograph looks like. And I think that that's one of the reasons at least I continue to pursue it because I love that feeling. You know, it's kind of like a drug. It's very intoxicating. It it is. Actually, you're almost like a hunter, if you will, looking, 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 and all your brain sees is the squirt. You're hunting for that composition. Mm-hmm. Boom, there it is. It's amazing. Just talking about it right now with you makes me get giddy for my next go about it, you know? <laughs> so, it's amazing.
Charcoal Book Club is back as a sponsor and wants to share a special event coming this year. The Chico Review is an annual event that gathers photographers to celebrate their love for photography. It's more than just an opportunity to share your work and meet publishers and editors. It's a rare chance to be surrounded and immersed by a community that prioritizes photography and being a photographer. If you've never had such an experience, mark the day and register for the event scheduled for March 17th through the 24th in Prey, Montana. Find out more by visiting ChicoReview.com or CharcoalBookClub.com. And thanks to all of you who have supported the show financially, especially through these challenging times we're experiencing. But if these conversations have helped you, but you have yet to support the show financially, please, you could change that today by becoming a Patreon supporter. You can contribute $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting Patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. Again, it's patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. Thanks. The choice to go to black and white, you know, the choice not to use color. Is is it that, why, why is it? Do you find that it's, well, you tell me. Why doesn't seeing and photographing color work for you, for you? For numerous reasons. One, I see my work in black and white. When I'm looking, when I'm looking at what I'm photographing, I'm seeing the black and white image. I'm seeing what I what I'm gonna create. And more importantly, I find it so passionate. I find it so moving and emotional because on a scientific level, and I love, I love color theory. I enjoy color photography so much because there's such a manipulation that a photographer can use with colors, with mood and stuff. But I don't want... When I'm showing something, I mean, there's always the the rare occasion, but I don't want a brain to go, oh, red, you know, these placements of these colors. That is a very, very, very important when you're photographing color because the brain's going to recognize it real quick Mm -hmm. and you're informing, right? That's part of the information that you're giving the viewer, whether their brain, whether they're consciously aware of it or not. Um, and, and subconsciously, I want them to go, wow, you know, look at, look at the engravings or, whoa, look at the intensity in that eye contact or, you know, I mean, there's, there's so much that I want them to feel that has literally zero about what the color of somebody's shirt is. I, it's literally zero what I want a viewer to feel at all. I want them to feel it rather than recognizing colors. Um, there's other things I want them to recognize even more. Yeah. Um, it, because I'm a big, I, I, I shoot some black and white, but I, I'm kind of, I'm a color photographer. That's, that's what I am. But I think important lesson for me in terms of using color, uh, even though I'm not, I couldn't really verbalize color theory. You know, I know it feels right. But more importantly, the lesson I learned is that the photograph, the subject of the photograph can't be the color alone. 
Mm. That is just another element, just like line and shape and mm -hmm. contrast and gesture. That that is a, just another component that I need to use in order to express what I'm trying in the, in the photograph. And I think that that the choice to do black and white or color has to be rooted in 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 an understanding of what you want to express. Yeah. Beyond whatever the subject is, because otherwise you're just a glorified Xerox machine. Yeah, because right? it's, it's not a bystander. It's not. It's a player in the game. Yeah. Color is a player in the game. Mm -hmm. It's just as heavy as texture and shape. You know, these are all elements. They're all players in the game. So tell me about your editing process, which is always like one of the hardest parts for any photographer to <laughs> <laughs> taking the picture. You know, you can get to be a master at that, but when it comes to sit down and and we're not talking about post processing people, we're talking about going through the pictures and picking which one yeah. is good and the one you're going to make a print of or show in a portfolio or whatever. So, what's what's that process been like for you? I'm I'm very knee jerk reaction. I've been known to be too critical and maybe cut too much. But to be quite honest, I'm looking for not the diamonds. I'm looking for the diamond. And you can feel it. I can feel it. I know. I know. And there might be, you know, five stunners, but there's always one winner. And you mm -hmm. have to be willing. Sometimes people, I've had people, oh, do you have any advice? Is that, yep. You have to be the B word. You have to be. You have to be so critical and honest. I am. I, I force myself to be. I don't, I'm not going to fluff myself up. If nothing from that shoot is epic, nothing goes past me. They might be ones I enjoy, mm -hmm. but I'm looking for the diamond. I'm looking for the diamond of the diamonds. It has to hit hard. And you know, I'm not trying to set myself up for failure because not everything you shoot is going to be like an epic home wow. run out of the ballpark. Sometimes you just, a, a base run is okay too, you know, but um, for me, that's, that's my editing process. When I'm going through a set, I'm, I'm looking for the one because uh, if I'm thinking of my work as like a dinner plate, I only want like one kind of mashed potato on the plate, right? I don't want different. Oh, here's multiple mashed potatoes. No, one diamond from that one shoot. I want each each dish on the plate to be a completely brilliant taste in the mouth that complements the next. It's a setup. And I also am a firm believer when I'm setting putting together a body of work or a portfolio that this is a magic carpet ride that we're going to go on. And I don't want, nobody wants a magic carpet ride to go like this. I want it to go like this, real gentle, not jarring, but something mm. different, something to experience. That's why I like to pull them in and pull them out. And I love the experience of it. You know, that, that's um, the way I think about it. Let's go a little deeper on that, though. Okay. I just completely understand that you're saying you're looking for the diamond. Right. But let's say you're doing an environmental portrait. You've you've narrowed it down to about maybe 12 frames that you're kind of looking at. What is the thing? Because all 12 of those photographs have the same subject, the same lighting, the same setting. Right. What 
can you quantify what it is besides the feeling? Because I completely get the feeling. Yeah. We're still looking at the photograph. What's, what do you, and maybe you can give me an example of a, of a photograph where you saw that thing, whatever it was in that particular photograph where you felt like that's it. I have a photograph. It's currently being exhibited in the International Hall of Fame and Museum, the International Photography Hall of Fame and Museum. And it's of it's from my project framed in California. It's two husbands embracing in front of the Capitol. Mm, and one used to be a dancer. And then so he's dipping. Right. And. Out of that set, of course, there was probably five or six real good ones. But then I tried to narrow that down even further. Where, where are my top three? And then once I get there, who, what is flawless or as close to flawless as I can get? And this is where it's like, you better be tight. What is as tight as it can get? Is it the point of that toe? Mm-hmm. Is it... You know, like it's, it's down to minusculity and you have to be, I have to be able to recognize because it could be just the difference between, it could be the a slight change in the way the mouths were meeting. You know, it could have been the shot and then two seconds later, the shot and what's different. There is something different in each yeah. frame, even if they're both killers, it's being able to recognize the minis- down to the minuscule, because that is what's going to make a difference between a dude, what a rad picture with whoa, whoa, get that sucker in Times Square, which is where it's been to. There's, there's always, even if it's minuscule, I have to be able to recognize that because sometimes that is the difference. Do you think that's that? I completely get it. Do you think that? that ability is innate or can it be learned? It can be learned, but being a hypercritical, uh, hyper-focused intensoid, that might come from within. And I always say, you know, you can teach anyone how to master their tool because the cameras are tool, right? But I can't teach someone how to have a soul. I can't. Hmm. So those two things need to be present in order for something to really touch others. Because if there's no soul to back it up and it's perfect and it's mastered and this and that, you're only so far. But it's that X factor. It's what people can't understand. They don't know what it is that has them hooked in. Well, that's me. Every picture is a self-portrait. And I tell people this, no matter what you're shooting, everything is a literal self-portrait. And I know that could be argued and debated, but that's how I treat my work. And I want to try my absolute hardest. I want to put my whole soul in everything. I, all my intellect, skill, talent, compassion, all that. I want, you know, and that might not, that, that might not be something you can teach to someone. I don't know. It's it's interesting, you know, because I I see, even though we photograph very differently, there's this, I think one of the things we have in common is is the sense of control of the frame, right? (laughs) And I could be pretty anal with that. And sometimes what I appreciate about some other people is, and I had, uh, I just finished teaching a class and uh, there was one photographer 
um, she she made she made photographs where she controlled the composition, but it, I didn't see her hand on it. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. it felt like it was just a spontaneous moment that happened to be captured. But she was very aware of it, and that's one of the things I'm I'm trying to work towards is is not having such a white knuckle grip on it because I don't, cause I feel like, yeah, as clean and as effective as the compositions are, I'm so aware of myself in there. Right. And I would, and part of me would love to make a photograph for that's a little less so that all the elements that I love about being in a photograph are there, but you're not seeing my heavy hand on there. Right? Is that possible? I don't know. <laughs> but that's what I kind of want to ask you. Not, not exactly in the, under those terms, but, you know, part of parting really good work is not being in complete control of everything. And part of it is being able to let go of some of it. So when, you, when you're working and you're being as exacting as you are with the composition and paying attention to the small details, where does the letting go play, play a role? Jeez, I think for what I'm doing recently, the letting go is, I don't know what I'm going to, I just don't know what's going to be there if I can do it. I think that's mm-hmm. letting go. I have to just say, okay, I don't even literally know if there's going to be anything to shoot, which is very terrifying and scary especially when you're putting this pressure on yourself to make gallery worthy exhibition, uh, you know, mind blowing award winning. And, and if I don't even know what I'm going to show, it could be petrifying, but I have to just say, Hey, I've studied, I have a book I love to study because it goes over what I call the science of the brain. It goes over just graphic graphic layouts. And when I don't know what I'm going to do, I'm like, okay, let me just, let me get my brain where it needs to be as far as being able to see something. But that, that's a big let go for me is just trusting that something will happen, Mm -hmm. but you can't do that if you don't go make the work. One of the challenges, especially being in the fine art world is putting a price tag on your work. Right. (laughs) <laughs> I still have not figured it out. It's something I still don't feel very comfortable with. But if you're entering that world, that's something that you have to sort of fi- sort of figure out. So yeah. it, it's not, not, it, I'm not asking you so much as how much you charge for print. I think that it's, it's going to be different for different people. Mm-hmm. But in terms of embracing and being comfortable with making that choice, that if this is the way that I'm going to show my work, that I am going to have to put a value on it that, that, is, that dignifies the person who's buying it, the work itself, and me who made it. So yeah. what, how, how did you sort of figure that, that out for yourself? Oh, boy, that's a toughie. And that's a tough formula to come up with what the price is going to be. Because I kind of want to make it something to be collected, something special that if someone does buy it, that they're that it's becoming something that is special to them, you know. Um, but I also want to be able to sell it, <laughs> mm-hmm. but also 
showing what level the work is. I have to honor that. I have to honor that I went and climbed a mountain in the Himalayas to do that. And if somebody wants that picture, maybe they need to go climb the Himalayas. And if they want my picture and they want a piece of that magic. So it's finding this formula that feels comfortable. And maybe mm-hmm. one of these days I'll have an agent and the agent can just handle that. But <laughs> me, <laughs> that's the end game, right? Mm-hmm. Oh man, pricing is so uncomfortable. But I, I eventually got to a point where I never go into a show expecting to sell anything at all whatsoever. So I can kind of divorce myself of that angst because I'm really sensitive to growing up in extreme poverty. I'm very sensitive to mm-hmm. that world. Yeah. You want people to be able to get it. But I also have to step back and say, whoa, dude, you're a master photographer now. Your level of effort and expertise and heart and magic and the the aura, the creating of the print and everything, the whole nine yards that goes into it, that has to be taken into, into account. And that's actually... The professional side—that's the working the work. Yeah. That's what was uh, that are that we're bad at. I'm getting better, however, because I have to set that anxiety aside. Oh no, what are people going to think? If it's too much. No, I, I understand. I'm I'm starting to understand what's appropriate and what's not appropriate for my for my work. It takes yeah. a lot. It's still very. Ugh. But that's the, I think that's part of it is you have to, you have to be the first one to know how to value your work. And, and by that, I don't mean how much to charge for it. Right. Because yeah. everything you mentioned, all the, the years of training, those countless bad pictures that you made, those hours where you didn't want to be out there making photographs or sit in front of the computer. And, you know, and then, of course, you know, the amount, amount, the amounts of money you spent on equipment and gear and ink and, you know, all that stuff, <laughs> you know. But ultimately, it's it's like when you value when you value your work, that's when other people can value it. And then it's just debating the price at that point. You're right. You're right. Because also, if you go too low, because you really want to make that sale and believe me, I do because I'm still a single mom status lady. Mm-hmm. But when you go too low, it it puts into question the value. Yeah. And I don't feel comfortable with that either. Yeah, you know, when I go shopping, I don't get the cheapest thing. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. I just don't. That's why they. I was reading about when you go to a restaurant and they uh, offer wines. They have a low wine. They have a high wine, they have the ones right in the middle. And people tend to go in, in, into the middle, right? And they know that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like you said about human psychology and understanding the way the brain works. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, when it comes to value, people want to feel like they, not so much that they've gotten a deal, but they have something of value. You know, mm-hmm. I have a couple of pieces of artwork in the house and I have spent probably more on that than I ever thought I would pay for a piece of artwork. But it's valuable to me. And I look oh. at it and I take great pleasure in it. And the amount of money that I paid for it is like, it's that's not the point. Right? I look at it and I go, I love that I have that in my house. And I think that that's the way that people who spend 
thousands of dollars on photography, that's that's their approach. There, yeah, there's some people that are looking at it strictly as an investment, mm-hmm. you know. But more than likely, I'm not selling to people <laughs> that. There are people who look at it and go, "I would like that as part of my life, my space." Yeah, yeah. And, I want it around me. Yeah, there's something about the way it makes me feel. I want it. In my world, it's the same reason why people buy flowers. Mm-hmm. Having that around you feels like life. Yeah. You know? Mm. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, one of my contemporary heroes, I guess you could say his name is Nick Brandt, B-R-A-N-T. Mm. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh, man. the You want to talk about environmental portraiture, his project, uh, I think it's called Inherit the Dust, mm-hmm. where he's gone into Africa. Oh, yeah. These full eight by ten film captures of elephants and whatnot. And then he's going printing them on canvases full size and then yeah. setting up in the environment where they maybe would have been naturally roaming. This man put so much thought and the physical energy and effort, man, his passion, concept, delivery, quality. It's just there, 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 there. For me personally, when I saw his work, cause I really have a lot of my, old school heroes, you know, Horse P. Horst, mm. Alexander, you know, these are my heroes, yeah. Imogene Cunningham. But when I think about, man, who today is really lighting my fire? He's one of the first one. And I actually recently started teaching myself. I'm at a college and a university. Oh, I always try to show people his work because it's like, this is what you can create if you go deep enough in your mind and deep enough in your heart and you bring the things together. So, yeah. I'm <laughs> glad to hear you're teaching cuz you I can tell you're a great teacher. I love it so much. Yeah. I love it. Students are very lucky. Thank you so much for saying that. I'd like to say they are. <laughs> I'm giving out a lot of trade secrets here. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It was really a joy to, to have a chance to talk with you. Thank you so much. I'm so honored. I appreciate it so much. Thanks to Rachel for joining us. Learn more about Rachel and her work by visiting steelcapture.com. And if you're a fan of our work, you can write reviews on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and share a favorite episode on social networks, be it X, formerly Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Remember to use the hashtag TheCandidFrame. You can also support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. Thanks to Marcy Tilton, Donnie Turnell, and Jerry Rosenzweig for their recent contributions. We've also relaunched our newsletter, and if you want to receive updates on everything related to TCF, like book recommendations and workshops, sign up today by visiting our website. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. 
The Candid Frames audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.